Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 26th, 2018. This is episode 2189 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday, and that means it's supposed to be Listener Feedback Day, where you send me emails and I answer them, but today... Well, that's exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> yeah, we are going to do Listener Feedback Day. We are back to our regularly scheduled programming mostly. There will be no interview this week as I search for a solution to my audio gremlins on the interviews. We have not had any problems with the audio quality of the show itself, so the show will go on because the show must go on. What do we got for you today in feedback? First up on deck, I have Nick Ferguson with a message for you about his coming consulting tour and how you can uh, procure his services for a little less than normal because, well, he'll be on the road for a specific period of time. How about dealing with conflicts about property use with neighbors? How about growing food indoors for an apartment dweller? Choosing nitrogen fixers for your permaculture systems? Is there a homesteading Bible? And if not, where do you go for info? What to plant in a lawn beyond just grass? The scanning robots are coming, and they're going to scan the hell. No, no there, there are scanning robots actually not coming. They're here. A prepared-to-success story and how we managed our egg inventory when we had the duck egg business. And a special announcement that you knew was coming that I'll say for when we do that segment. Anyway, with that, before we get into your feedback for me, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. That's where you can get Berkey water filtration systems and a lot of the really great stuff for your Berkey needs and for your prepper needs as well. In fact, Jeff has just updated his offer for the MSB. You should check out the MSB if you're going to buy a Berkey system or anything from Directive 21 with Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. And remember, you can get a Berkey a lot of places, but there is only one. There is only one original. Berkey Guy, and that is Jeff the Bar Berkey Guy Gleason. You will find him at Directive21.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. Have you ever thought you'd like to have a really special knife, something really unique, and just thought, you know, I don't have the money to invest in, like, a really special high-end knife? There's more than one way for a knife to be special. One could be maybe it's the first knife you ever built yourself. And I know what you're thinking. I don't have a forge. I don't have grinders. I don't. You don't need any of that. You can do it with simple hand tools, some epoxy, and picking some stuff out at KnifeKits.com. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not sure how to do it. That's all right. They have DVDs and books that tell you and show you exactly how to do it. And if you need some help figuring out what you need, you can pick the phone up and give them a call, and a real person will answer the phone and help you. And get all of that more at KnifeKits.com. And, again, they also do a discount for members of the MSB. So if you're going to place that order at KnifeKits.com, Check the benefits section of your MSB first and go ahead and get that discount code. And before we hear from Nick Ferguson and get into your feedback for this show, let me remind you that one of the ways you can help support this show is by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. So if you think we're worth a couple dimes an episode, consider joining, then use all those discount codes we're always talking about to get your money back and then some. Most people that are MSB members say if they use their, their discounts a few times a year, they don't just get their money back. They end up profitable. 
That's what I try to do when I put the MSB together. I try to put together a program that would let you help me help you and help you back. And that's uh, that's what the MSB is. It's a triple win. I win because I get to do what I love to do, which is teach and entertain. You win because you get to support the programming that you love, but you can get your money back and then some with the discount codes. For the triple win, it's the providers and the supporting vendors. They win because guess what? They get to get business they wouldn't otherwise have. Let me tell you some about one of our sponsors today, NEC. I decided to pick up, it was like 20-something bucks worth of seed. And I even went to the MSB, my own MSB, and I logged in. And I was sitting there, and I looked at the thing and clicked the link and went over to NEC to buy some stuff. And then I realized after I checked out, in fact, it was while the little spinny thing's going when you hit pay, dummy, you didn't put your discount code in. Well... They got the order, they recognized my name, and they refunded me the amount of the discount, which from any seat is a good discount, 20%. They gave me the discount back, even though I screwed up and didn't put it in. I wasn't even going to ask them. I was like, that's ah, five bucks or whatever. You know, it's a program like this that has support of people where they recognize the value you guys bring. That's, that's a pretty... Pretty telling story for the MSB, and I wanted to just give any seed props on that. If you're looking at where you're wanting to buy seed by, you know, like the ounce and four ounce and pound uh, for vegetables and stuff like that, I'm doing a huge amount of planting in my food forest this year. Uh, man, any seed, check them out because they have that quantity that, you know, makes it really make a lot of sense. And the other thing is some of you guys are in like, you know, you have friends and stuff that are community members and all. You might want to look at putting together a package deal on seed and splitting them up because you save a lot of that money that way, buying in bulk as it is. Then you throw 20% on it. Yeah, it can really save you some money. All right, so with that, uh, on saving some money and on doing the right things with your property, Nick Ferguson is going to be touring the south, southwest, southeast area, central United States, all kinds of places. And for more on that, here's Nick Ferguson himself to let you know what he's going to be up to and how you can uh, procure his services during this time. Hey, all you TSP listeners, Jack offered me the opportunity to give you guys a shout-out on my upcoming consulting trips. I'm going to be headed out of town on the road to visit some people and do some consulting this month. And some of you are yelling, yes, I need Nick to help me. You might be someone who wants to start up a backyard nursery and you don't know where to start or how to set everything up to help you be successful, well, that's where I can come in. I can literally get all the components you need for an intermittent mist propagation system, bring everything to your property, find a good location. We can set it all up in an afternoon. I can show you how to do it. You might be wondering why have me help you because it'll save you hundreds of hours of research, trial and error, hundreds of dollars in savings just in trialing bad parts and materials, let alone the thousands of dollars in lost plants because you didn't include one simple preventative fix to keep your system working. And it could save you years of just messing around with this, trying to figure these things out. I've already made the mistakes and figured out how to set up almost idiot-proof systems. But let's say you're a prepper. You're one of those hardcore preppers who has a bug-out location, lots of MREs, but really isn't into the homesteading and plants garbage, you know. Do you really want to eat those MREs and freeze-dried meals for years if stuff ever really did hit the fan, if times really did get tough? Or would you rather have a gourmet backup plan? 
How about a free food system all set up, ready to go at your bug out location that'll take care of itself? A system that will make food with no extra outside inputs, meat and vegetables and fruit. I can show you how. How valuable would it be to have fresh meat, fruit, vegetables ready to go should you need them in a grid down scenario? I've been to several really cool bug out locations. And people will spend tens of thousands of dollars on bunkers, weapons, and the most awful food imaginable. So why not drop two grand on setting up a system that'll protect you from prying eyes, provide all the vitamins and minerals you need, feed you with good produce and gourmet meat, and not need any work other than maybe yearly maintenance from when you set it up to when you really need it. You can literally set and forget. Then if you ever need to kick it into production, you can have a game plan that's easily implemented and you could be harvesting meat in two months' time if everything went right. Or you might be more of a permy who's been bit by the food forest bug and you need a plan. I can come up with a list of plants and trees and show you where to plant everything. We can draw up a plan on paper, mark down where everything goes, and then actually mark with numbered flags where you'll need to plant each thing. I can take the guesswork out of something where you wouldn't know you made a mistake until five or ten years down the road. And maybe you're just a pragmatist. Several times I've walked onto a landowner's property with them before they decided to build and even before they decided to buy. And within 30 minutes, saved them $30,000 in expenses. I made their life way easier when it comes to maintaining their driveway and their house just by careful observation and knowing how living systems work and how water flows across a landscape. I was able to guide them away from bad choices that would have cost them big years down the road. So if you're one of those who've been thinking about having a pro come out to your place and help you with some great advice, identify opportunities on your land, maybe troubleshoot problems you've been having, or just fix your paralysis by analysis. Now is one of your only chances this year. I have a lot going on starting next month, so I really doubt I'll be able to schedule any more consulting trips after March. I might be able to, but I really doubt it. I'll be traveling to Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas, and maybe the adjoining states as well. It's $800 a day for the consult, and depending on how far you are from the last stop, there may be additional travel expenses if it's a long trip. And honestly, I'm cool with bartering some things too. You can email me directly, nick at homegrownliberty.com. If you need more info or want to get on on the consulting tour, I'm actually headed to the border of Alabama and Tennessee this weekend. And the big pro for getting on one of these consulting tours is oftentimes I just completely eliminate the travel expenses, which can drop your cost by about 50 and 60%. So it's a major discount. So if you've been thinking about it, you better get on it. All right. That's about it. Thanks for your time. Hope to hear from some of you guys. That email again is Nick, N-I-C-K at homegrownliberty.com. Do good things. All right, so uh, great stuff from Nick Ferguson. Really recommend you take him up on it. And if you didn't hear one of the states mentioned that uh, you know he mentioned and you're in another state and like you know and you're not in I don't know Hawaii or something, uh, you might want to get in touch with him anyway because uh, a lot of those states touch other states and you know you pick up one thing in a state and next thing you know you put that out and you pick up two or three or four more and then all of a sudden you can go there so if you'd like nick to come out and do any of the stuff he was talking about get in touch with him again his email is nick at homegrownliberty.com 
Nick at HomegrownLiberty.com. Uh, next up, uh, I have a question here from Justin. Justin says, my question is, how have you dealt or would you deal with neighbors who are upset about improvements activities you're conducting on your land? Background. I purchased a one and a quarter acre lot in a county island at the end of a dirt road and built our dream home on it. Part of the deal with my wife was that I would wall in a portion of the backyard, small price to pay for not having to live in an HOA, so our girls could have a safe place to play. Our lot was uh, the vacant lot on the street, and our neighbors over the years got really used to having a desert open space next door. This weekend, the footings were being poured for a six-foot block wall, which is being built 25 feet off the property line. The neighbor came to the property line and was complaining about losing their view. He asked if I would consider a split-block iron-view fence. I told him I would look into it, but that what I was doing was, quote, one, on my property, two, allowable under current zoning, and three, permitted. I'm going to be, it's going to be about 30% more expensive. I want to be a nice guy and a good neighbor, but at the same time, I'm pissed that my neighbor feels entitled to try and tell me what I should do with my own property. I don't want to set a precedent that when my neighbors feel they can, uh, where where my neighbors feel that they can approve or reject improvements or activities I want to do on my property. Sorry for the length, but I figured this topic you may have dealt with or something relevant to the audience. Any thoughts or suggestions would be appreciated. So one of the things, Justin, I'm not clear on is if your additional cost, uh, 30% more, would be to do it the way he wants it versus the way you want it. So let's start out with the first thing. The way that your neighbor would prefer that it would be done, if you're open to that at all, and if it costs more, or if you actually would like it that way, um, but it costs more, one of the things I would consider telling your neighbor is, listen, um, I don't I don't have to change the way that I'm doing this, and I have budget for this. And uh, that budget is X, whatever it is. And what you're asking, when I looked into it, would cost me 30% more. You know, I'm a reasonable person. I don't have that. I don't have that extra money. If you really want it this way, if you would pay the difference, I'll do it that way. And he might say, well, go F off. Okay, well... See, my, my point there is I made an effort. I made an effort. You're asking me to increase my cost of construction, and, and I don't really want to, but you only do this if you actually do, if you're actually totally cool with it, right? But you want me to do this for you. Well, this is the extra money that it's going to cost me. So if you'd be willing to do this, then I'm willing to change the design and, and, and do something that's, that's, that's more um, fitting with what you'd like. If you don't want it, um, what I would say is, listen, I, I'm sorry that we disagree about this, but this is my property. And, I, you know, sir, I have no intention to ever tell you what you can and can't do with your property. And, and, and I'm just looking for the same courtesy. I would never in this situation be like, well, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm going to do it however the hell I want to. That starts shit off on a really bad note. But I have no problem telling a person, listen, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to you know, design my property the way that I want it for my reasons. But I'm going to be reasonable in my tone and reasonable in the way that I explain it. And I'm going to point out again, at any point that somebody does or doesn't want me to do something with my property, and I'm unwilling to comply with the request for whatever reason it is, I'm always going to point out the fact that whatever you want to do that's legal and doesn't hurt anybody on your property, I'm never going to stand in the way of it, and I only ask for the same courtesy in return. 
Now that said, I can kind of see a person who has a view that they appreciate, and that view is now going to be obstructed, right? But I think maybe one of the other things to explain is this is a play area for my kids. So your view might be of my kids and all their crap laying out there. Do you, do you really want that? Or, or you know, my your view might be also including a lot of noise for my kids that this wall might actually knock out. So I mean, you got to decide how you deal with this. But I mean, I would deal deal with it incredibly cordially. But I would not be browbeat into doing something I didn't want to do. So I'm back to if it costs thirty percent more, and you're open to it. You're okay with it. If you if you do it this way, you won't every time you look at it be pissed, right? You're gonna be mad that you did it. Then if if you're in that boat, then do not do it. Do it the way you want to, but be very cordial about it. And, and again, I think one of the ways that I've always handled neighbors if they ask ask something is, you know, I think you'll be pleased with it, but by the way, you know, I'm not gonna tell you how to manage your own property. And, you know, I, but, again, I am toward the edge of, if you're okay with it, being reasonable about trying to work with this person, especially since it's new. But if you want me to spend more money, you're paying the difference. And, and I'm going to say that very, very politely. But, like, I, I'm not going to say it from, well, since you want this, then you need to pay for it. I'm not going to put it that way. The way I'm going to put it is, I don't have the I budgeted for this. We just built the house. I don't have it. I made this deal with my wife. This is all the money I have in the budget for that. This is the spread. And if you want it done that way, then the only way that I can afford to do that is for you to cover the difference if it's that important to you. And I don't expect you to. I have no, no belief that you should. You asked me, this is the only solution that I have that makes my wife happy and can make you happy. How do you feel about that? And that way when they say, well, I'm not doing it, if that's what they say, you say, okay, I just wanted to make sure that I did what I could to comply with your request. Now, if it costs 30% less to do it that way, I don't know what to tell you. Because if it's less, you know, it's going to cost you 30% more to do it the way you want it, then obviously you don't want it the other way or you do it on a cost-saving basis. So, I don't know, that's... It's kind of a sticky wicket, so to say, and you gotta, you gotta figure out how you want to handle it. But never tell a neighbor, like, you're screwed, there's nothing you can do about it, I'm doing it the way I want to. Always be really, really overly nice about it. And, you know, try to comply with things that are reasonable that you would hope that they would comply with for you. But if you, if you would not expect that, point that out. I would not expect you to do this for me. You know, and, and I'm not going to tell you how, because I think it helps people understand it a little bit more when, okay, I'm not doing this to you, right? Because that's how people tell you, like, you're doing this to me, right? No, I'm doing this to my property because I bought it, just like you bought yours. And I'm not going to tell you how to do business on your property either. But try to preserve that relationship, because we had one neighbor in our life that was really, really a shitty neighbor, and it made me not want to live there. And you don't want that after you just built your dream house. Next question goes from Anthony. Anthony says, uh, How would you grow your own vegetables in an apartment? I have a five-foot by five-foot section of my apartment, which doesn't get any natural light. 
I saw you had some items of the day where the full spectrum grow lights. However, I was curious, what would Jack do in this space? Supplemental, supplemental. The foods I was thinking uh, would be items sold by the pound. Cauliflower is that a reasonable plant to grow in this situation? No. Tomato and indeterminate, probably not either. Um, and my salad greens, additional suggestions, welcome. Is there a past episode on the subject? Please refer me to those episodes. Thanks for good work, Anthony. Okay, so he also says, I know having to move this kind of setup can be a pain, but the kind that pays for itself. So here's what I would say, Anthony. Since you are in an apartment and you're probably not going to stay there, um, indoor growing in many instances is not the most ideal situation because it requires energy inputs that you would get for free from the sun. So I would steer you toward whatever we're going to do. You know, my first thought was an aquaponic system. We get a fish tank. We set up an ebb and flow bed. You get one of the the, uh, the stackable 55-gallon fish tanks like I have in my office. Put a tank on the bottom, your ebb and flow on the top. Put some lights over it, and you're golden. And you could do that in spades in a five-foot area. You could even maybe put in some other beds that come out and make it kind of U-shaped. Because the 55-gallon tank is right around four foot long. So you could have kind of a U-shape there and do some other beds, and you kind of walk in to the you know your overhead stuff. However, it is a pain in the ass to move, and you know it's 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 a whole additional skill set taking care of fish and things like that. And you got pumps, so there's more energy uh, being taken uh, out of it. Whereas, what if we did something that when you did move to a house? Even if you didn't want to grow indoors anymore or only do it part of the year, it, it, it still did something for you. So what I would look at doing is building a rack system either based on T8 or T5 lights. And I think you'll be happier if you're actually growing things all the way out with T5s. I'm going to steer you away from indoor tomato plants uh, because they're so big. And it, you, you got to get light on the whole thing. Uh, if, if you wanted to do things like tomatoes, then I would suggest that you go to uh, something like I have, which is a grow tent. I have a four foot by four foot grow tent. It might look kind of you know honky sitting in there. It might look like you're growing the special herbs or whatever, uh, and a really high end set of lights. The advantage there is when you move, it's still a great way to start a lot of plants. You know, we can throw some uh, heating mats in there. We can have complete climate control. And when we have that garden, we can save hundreds and hundreds of dollars starting plants. The lower cost and easier way, though, again, we just build ourselves a shelving system with T5 light fixtures in a way where we can raise them and lower them, and we grow on shelves. And I would focus on growing plants like greens and herbs. And, and I would do almost 100% of that. Uh, if you wanted to just do microgreens, then you could use T8s with no problem whatsoever. One daylight and one low spectrum uh, bulb. With T5s, I would go with the full daylight spectrum on both bulbs per fixture. And, and that's probably what I would do. And I would grow anything that you can grow to about a foot or less and harvest it. That, that would be kind of my litmus test. Even peppers. Yeah, you can grow a pepper plant indoors. You can do it. It's a lot of work to grow a pepper. And if you look at the price of peppers through most of the year in the store, you'll never get an ROI on it. If you look at salad greens and some of the deluxe greens and stuff like that, 
That's where you get a return. If you look at growing things like parsley and basil and other herbs that we can take small snippings of and get a lot of flavor and a lot of bang for our buck with over and over again, that would be kind of the way that I would lean. And you can do this a couple ways. You can buy a system that is designed for this. Again, and, and, and T5's shop light basically um, are kind of the best for this. I do like the LED full spectrums. Uh, they're nice. They do some things really, really well, but I get a lot better results out of them using them to start plants and get them up to where they have a few true leaves on and then moving them out into a greenhouse or something like that or getting them out into a garden than I would say trying to fully grow a plant. Unless you go to the very higher end stuff, you know, something like a 600 watt king bow or something, which is almost a $200 light. So I don't know that you want to do that. Again, we can put these T5 light fixtures together, 200 bucks. We can do quite like three fixtures for that and maybe 250 to do three fixtures and three shelves. And then again, when you move, now you can start all the plants you want for your garden. So, and then moving that actually is not a big deal. Uh, the, the shelving probably take apart and, and fold down flat and the lights, you just want to wrap them in something so they don't break. And if they do, you know, you're out of light tube or two, you replace them. The fixture should be pretty solid. That's what I would do if I were in your situation. I don't know that's what I would have done 10 years ago. But with the last 10 years behind me, it's what I would do today, Anthony. I Hopefully that helps you. Uh, next up, uh, this is from Trevor. Tre a lot of gardening-type questions today. I have a question about the best perennial nitrogen fixers. Hi, Jack. My name is Trevor, and I have a question about nitrogen fixers. I'm looking to plant a few nitrogen fixers around my property and looking for a list of good ones. I want something perennial that preferably produces its own fruit, similar to the amber autumn olive that you and Nick showed in one of your videos. I'm not really looking for chop and drop nitrogen fixers at this time. I live in North Louisiana and have relatively acidic soil due to all the pine trees. Thanks in advance, Jack. Keep up the good work. Well, there's not a lot of them that are really heavy food producers that are also nitrogen fixers. And if you're not chopping and dropping, the fact that they're a nitrogen fixer may not be that beneficial to you. And let me explain to you why. So when we plant a, a, any sort of a plant, let's say sea berry would be inedible, but I don't know how it'll do in your southern climate. You can always try it. It's not done good here, but you have acidic soil. Have I have alkaline soil. So sea berry might do wonderful where you are. And that's an incredible nutraceutical plant. But let's say it's producing those nitrogen nodules on the roots. If we at some point don't prune that plant back, It doesn't like just go, hey, you know what, everybody, free-for-all party, everybody take some of my nitrogen nodules. The way we get nitrogen released into a system is by pruning back the perennial. And when we prune back the perennial, the perennial balances itself by pruning, self-pruning back some of its own root systems, specifically smaller hair-like roots from certain areas, which have those nodules on them. When those roots self-prune, that's when that nitrogen really becomes available to the other plants. Now, there, there's probably some transference through exudates between one plant and the other while those plants are growing. But it's generally in that pruning, pulsing process that you get nitrogen. So, do you first of all, do you need nitrogen fixers in your system? Do your plants, because the nitrogen you know, fixation is heavily based on the permaculture that came out of the tropics where the soil is extremely thin and nutrient just goes away very, very quickly. So 
you got an acidic soil, probably sandy soil, so that can drain kind of quick. But if you have a lot of organic matter and life in your soil, you're not going to have a nitrogen deficiency. This is more of a kickstart mentality with nitrogen fixers that support trees and other things that they do. Um, but autumn olive is honestly, for what you're asking for, the number one thing I'd recommend. Now, Coldstream Farm used to sell autumn olive seedlings for like less than a dollar a plant. I bought like a hundred at a time, and that's why I've got them all over here. You know, even with 50% losses, you know, 200 of them, you end up with a hundred plants. And you get the ones that are really hardy, and you got some variants in them and some genetics and all, that's great. But they don't really have that anymore. Now, if you don't have a very large property, though, and you need 10 of them, I would go buy named varieties. The other thing I would look at is Gumi, named varieties of Gumi, G-O-U-M-I, and I would plant those as well. These are like autumn olives, but they get bigger. Now, you might see a Gumi out there that's marketed under the name Sweet Scarlet as a pollinator. I have one on my property, and to tell you the truth, I don't see much difference between it and the plain old seedling autumn olives. The fruit is much smaller than the gumi, and it's a great plant. It is what it is. And what I was getting to is you can find named autumn olives in a lot of places now. It's getting very hard to find them in, you know, quantity of cheap, you know, just seedlings. Of course, you can go find someone that has autumn olive and get some seed from them or cuttings and make your own. That would be another option. Another option you might consider, again, you didn't say anything about the size of the property that you have. But an incredibly valuable tree in the landscape, um, and it's up to you how big it gets, because if you prune it, you can keep it smaller, and if you don't, this is a huge tree. But honey locust. Now, I would not plant honey locust on a property of a person that I hated. That's how much I don't like honey locust, as a straight-up plant. They have thorns with thorns on them, and if you break the thorns open, there's thorns inside the thorns. It is that bad. They make, you know, I don't know, they make freaking black locusts look like a fur baby. So why would I bring it up? Because there is this magical thing called the thornless honey locust. And I would just say if you plant thornless honey locusts and you see thorns on one of you planted, cut that thing to the ground and kill it and don't let it grow. And you need to do a good job of making sure that when they're dropping seeds and all, that there's not a bunch of seedlings coming up because you can end up starting out with thornless and end up with thorned from seedlings. Nature finds a way and reversion does occur. Now, this happened heavily in a small town in Australia who's under guidance Bill Mollison found on permaculture. They planted a lot of thornless honey locusts, and eventually they ended up with a lot of thorn locusts. So you need to think about what you're doing there and make sure you're going to have proper management practices, whether it's through grazing or mechanical or whatever. These are nitrogen fixers. They fix a buttload of nitrogen. They create incredible symbiotic relationships. They're a wonderful tree for shade because they have fern-like leaves, which means they give you shade as though you were under about a 35 to 45% shade cloth versus under an oak tree where it's like you know 80%, 90% shade. So they let a lot of light through, but they filter a lot of light out. That means the full spectrum comes through. There's just less of it. That means you can plant one of these where you have grass, and grass will grow under it. That, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of a beautiful, and it's been used massively in landscaping throughout the country. A lot of times you go to places like zoos and parks, and you'll see these huge light tan trees with these kind of rippled bark, and you, it's a beautiful fern-like structure. It might be 100 feet tall, and you're like, what kind of tree is it? Thornless honey locust. And here's the thing. 
those little pods on them, they're full of sugar. There's all kinds of things that you can do. You can eat the pods when they're young. You can eat them when they're old, though that takes a little bit more work. The seeds can be ground and roasted into it like a coffee substitute that actually tastes a little bit more like bitter chocolate than coffee. Uh, there's even somebody told me recently that there was an episode of the Moonshiners show, which I just can't watch. I try to make myself watch it just for ideas, and I just so full of shit. I just can't watch it. But apparently they made a bunch of moonshine. You know what they make on on, uh, on moonshiners? You know what they really make, guys? They make water come out of the still. They don't make moonshine on there. Anyway, uh, they used uh, locust, honey locust uh, pods as a sugar source to make shine. So this seems like there's a lot of potential for thornless honey locust. I actually have an order in with Coldstream Farm right now for 25 native persimmon and 25 uh, thornless honey locust. They were, they were very inexpensive in those quantities. And it was the 24 to 25 was your break point where 24 costs more than 25. So the nice thing about buying a tree like a thornless honey locust is let's say you only need three or four of them. We'll put the rest of them in pots, grow them out for a year, and sell them as an ornamental tree to friends, family, neighbors, etc. for let's say 15 bucks a pop. Make some money on it. Those, those are the suggestions I have. The other side of this is you, you specify a perennial. But if you want nitrogen fixing... In food forests and things like that, where you have open glades and what have you, the best nitrogen fixer you can probably ever plant will be red cowpea. Red cowpea, let it grow, take the peas if you want it, or before it produces, chop it and drop it. I see you didn't want to chop and drop, but that's how it works. So hopefully that helps you there, Trevor. Uh, that's kind of the best advice that I can give you under those circumstances. Uh, next, I have a question from Mike. Mike says, Hi, Jake. I'm Mike from South Central PA. I was wondering if there's a homesteading Bible or anything along those lines. I've been a listener since 2016 and recently a member. Shortly after finding your show, I had a 1.5-acre property little literally fall into my lap. Love how things line up sometimes. I've been devouring all the info I can since then and own uh, Hands-On Home and Gaia's Garden. By your advice, I'm now taking it slow in spite of my excitement. Started a food forest first. Since my wife is well-practiced gardener, I know no one book has it all, but is there a list of must-haves for lack of a better term? Thanks for being a constant boot in the rear to get it done. Encouragement. Mike, I, I don't really have like one book that I'd say, if you buy this book, then you're good. Um, I, I've actually gotten to the point where I, I learn a lot more um, from things like courses Uh, lectures, YouTube videos, reading through the notes of things like uh, Bill Mollison's lectures that he did here in the 90s in the United States. There's a huge uh, download that's free uh, that was assembled by a company called Barking Frogs Permaculture. It's over 100 pages. You're probably not going to do everything in it. It's certainly not a homesteading Bible, but the, the way that that thing opens the mind to what's possible um, is it, pretty cool. I'll put a link to that in the show notes because that's free. What I've come to over the years is an understanding that the biggest thing that happens that's probably a good reason to not have a Bible of homesteading is that people want to do everything. They want to do everything at once. And I think that the best thing that you can do is you decide a thing you want to do and then you find the materials that you need to do that thing. So, you know, you decide that one of the things, and I really think the way to approach a homestead is to figure out the things you want from the homestead rather than the things you want to do to the homestead. So what you want from the homestead, one thing people generally want is food. 
You know, one thing is beauty, etc. So if you want food, then you need to figure out, well, what do I want to eat that, that I can produce for myself? And generally, that'll fall into two primary categories, one being plant and the other being animal, whether that animal means meat or animal product, like, let's say, a, a goat for milk. Which personally, I think if you have goats, you will probably hate your life, but some people do and like it. Um, or it might be a product like eggs from a chicken or a duck or a quail. So then we determine, okay, instead of getting crazy like every homesteader does and ending up with like, you know, two dozen chickens and they can't even give the eggs away, for the next three weeks, we're not going to go out of our way to eat eggs. We're going to live our life the way we live our life. And we're going to write down every egg we eat. And over three weeks to a month, you're going to get a pretty good aggregate average of how many eggs your family actually uses. So then what you're going to do is you're going to say to yourself, self, how many chickens do we need to produce this many eggs a day plus one? In case you lose a chicken, a chicken doesn't work out right, whatever, or maybe plus two at the most. If you do plus two of your use then every week you're going to produce about 14 eggs. Feed two to the dogs, there's a dozen to give your neighbors to make them happy. Each week give a different neighbor a dozen eggs. I mean, something like that. Maybe during your really high production time, you know, crack them, gently scramble them, throw them in a bag and freeze them, and then you have eggs during your low time, things like that. So you do the chicken system. Okay, then you say, okay, what does the chicken do? Well, the chicken eats, it poops, It scratches, and it processes stuff. So if we're going to have a garden, then what we should have is a system with our chickens that composts for the garden. So let's set up the composting system, and let's set up a couple garden beds, just a couple. And let's get those out of the gate started, and let's figure out where we want to do this, what is the best location, how do we do this, and then let's put that to bed. Let's make those two or three or four garden beds, whatever it is, freaking solid. We know exactly where they are. We know exactly when we're going to mess with them. We know exactly what we're going to do. And we've got the garden beds here and the chickens are here. And we thought about that in advance. And we take all of our compostables. They go to the chickens. The chickens do something with them. That goes to somewhere else to finish off its compost. And the compost goes into the garden. Aha. Now we've got that system down. If you don't want chickens, don't do this. Okay. Though I think they are the best single homesteading animal that there is. I love my ducks, or I did love my ducks. I'll talk about that with the final question of the day. And it is probably the case that someday there will again be a very small flock of personal-use ducks on this property. But when it comes to the ability to take material and process it into a form where it composts beautifully, the chicken is the worker. And you can have, you know, we have four bantam chickens, and we have right now bowls of freaking eggs. Bowls of freaking little chicken eggs. And they're good and they're yummy and I eat them all the time. I can't keep up with four freaking chickens. And those four chickens could live happily, I don't care what Paul Wheaton says, in a deep litter run the size of a bedroom. And we could victory garden at it, but why make our lives hard when we're starting out unless we know that's what we want to do? We set up our deep litter run, we do all of our processing of our chickens there, We and, and then we've got that. What else do you want from your homestead? If you want a side hustle, I just did a show on that, right? So what 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 does the side hustle look like? What do we want? And this is the problem I think most homesteaders have. 
the, the, everybody gets romanticized to all the things they can do without asking the first question of what do we want. We want leisure. You know, if I have an acre and a half, if there's a good spot for it, I'm putting a pond in. I don't need a homesteading Bible for that. I need a qualified pond installer that knows what the hell they're doing with good re re resources and checking up on them online before we hire them with like the Better Business Bureau, etc. And asking for references. And then we put a pond, because now we can fish, right? I don't have to build an aquaponic system or an aquatic system like Jack did. If I have a, 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 you know, a quarter acre pond site on my acre and a half, boom, pond goes in. Now we really might want to look at ducks, maybe, if we want duck eggs. Do we want duck eggs? Do we want ducks because they're pretty? We want ducks because they're pretty? We either need to find something to do with the ducks' eggs, or we need to have drakes. Because we can have four or five drakes that sit out there. They don't eat that much food if we keep the number low. Now we have pretty ducks that swim around and manage the sides of our pond. Do we really want that, though? I don't know. Do we want little creatures that make holes where the mud is? We're not. Are we willing to fence them out of our garden? Are we willing to fence them into the lake? See, this, I think, is a better way to approach homesteading. What do I want? And when I think I know the answer to it, then I say, what are all the consequences of that? And am I willing to do the things necessary? And let's take this one bite at a time. And I know this is a question about a book or a reference guide. And the truth is I really don't have one. I think if you're brand new to gardening and you want to get gardening off the ground, you can do a lot worse than Mel Bartholomew's uh, square foot gardening. But I don't square foot garden, and I'm not going to. But I think it gives you a process that gets a garden going, and I think what will eventually happen is you'll go, I don't need this stinking grid anymore, and you'll just go back to gardening the normal way, but it'll get you know, how we mix soil together, how we build it, and how we manage the soil. Um, those are the, 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 the way that I think you need to come at this because each homesteading thing is kind of its own separate thing. And I think we've gotten to a point where on some levels we're relying way too much on other people's information and, and how we should do things and learning before we do. The best way to learn is by doing. And the way we mitigate the, the consequences of doing it improperly is the one bite at a time approach and starting out with what do I want. If, if I could wave a magic wand and make this property exactly what I wanted it to be tomorrow morning, what would it look like? And every time you answer, well, I would have this and that, okay, what does that give you? How much is it going to cost to get it? And do you still want it after you looked at it that way? And how much work does it take to maintain And if we will take that approach, we'll realize that our grandparents were smart, like I've always said, And they, they didn't do a lot more than they had to. Chicken coop, a little garden, grass grow, cut it a couple times a year, compost some stuff, go hunt and go fishing and relax. To try to live more hunter-gatherer-like on our own property. That, that's kind of my advice there. Next up, I have a question from Jeff in Buffalo, New York. Jeff says, is there anything better to plant than grass, regular grass seed on my lawn? I live in a suburban lot, 0.15 acres, and my two puppies tore up the grass last year running around in the mud. I need to plant grass for them and my kids to play. What would you suggest? I have a corner of my yard set aside for my garden. I have an apple and a pear tree planted in the play area of my yard. Thanks, Jeff. Well, I mean... Keeping in mind that your neighbors might hate you, I don't know. Um, what I would say, especially in your climate, New York, there are two 
plants that I would want to include in my lawn, no matter where my lawn was, in, in, especially in the Northeast. It's going to do so well and do so much for you. One is plantain, and the other is clover, specifically white Dutch clover or New Zealand white clover or both. And the good news is we can buy the clover seed for a few bucks a pound, and with a small area like that, a pound is a lot. Uh, and I would I would sow that not just into that play area that's dirt bound right now and needs to be grown out. I would sow it through the whole damn yard. And with the rainfall you get up there and all, it, next year you'll have clover everywhere. And I would let it grow in between cuttings to the point where it flowers and attracts bees and things like that. And just tell your kids not be to be careful when they go barefoot. No, I mean that's. You learn the hard way if you don't, but I remember stepping on a bee a time or two in the clover running around barefoot because it felt so damn good as a kid. The other plant that I would want to put in there is plantain, specifically plantago major, the broadleaf plantain. I do not know of a source of large amounts of seed for for plantain. The, the reality, though, is where you live, there's plantain everywhere. There's probably some in your lawn already, and all you need to do is find some of it And watch it, you know, some if you if, you know someplace where it's not going to get cut, and it's going to put up seed stalks in a couple months, and when those seeds are dry, go out there and harvest seed, and spread it in your yard, and if you have plantain, clover, and grass in your yard, you've got a really great yard. Now you've got plantain; it's medicinal. You've also got a pot herb and plantain chopped up, mixed in with other greens. It's great in a salad. Um, and it's gonna, it's perennial. It's gonna put down a heavy crown root. It's gonna come back year after year after year, and it's gonna self-propagate. You've got clover, so you've got nitrogen fixation. Clover doesn't get real tall like grass does. It competes with the grass. It slows down the rate of growth of the grass, but it doesn't choke it out. So now you have a lawn that needs less mowing. We can let it grow deeper, so now it needs less care and less irrigation because we're not cutting it down to the daggone ground once every two weeks in the grow season. We're also bringing in pollinating insects. And then you can take it yourself from there. But that that's what I would base a lawn in any northeastern location specifically on. And where I grew up, that's what our lawn was, and no one did it. If, if you needed plantain, you walked out and you, you found it. Uh, another thing to put in your lawn, believe it or not, is wild garlic. Uh, it grows fantastic up there. We can cut the tops and use those like chives. And we can use the little garlic bulblets. And the way that I would do that, and wild garlic is actually really an onion, but it smells very garlic-like. And it grows all over up there. It grows all the way down in Arkansas, all over the place. All you need to do with that is go find it, pull it up, take a screwdriver, poke a hole in the ground where you want to put one, wiggle it around, shove it in that hole, and mash it down. And if you do that right before it rains, you'll, you'll do pretty well. The other thing you can do is watch for it to go to seed, And when it goes to seed, it'll be like these little clusters on top of the spikes. And they'll look like little bitty garlics and onions. And by the way, that's what they are, little bitty onions, little bitty garlicky onions. And uh, you, you just rub those off, and you can plant those or just broadcast them in your yard. By the way, those are fantastic in flavor. What we used to do with them when we knew wild stands of them is we just take and pull the whole cluster off and throw them like in a salad or cook with them or what have you. Uh, just make sure you know what you, that you're actually looking at wild garlic slash onion and that you're not looking at something like death canvas because there's a reason they call it death canvas. 
Uh, those are the types of things. Wildflower mix. I mean, if you can find a, 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 a regional wildflower mix, and especially perennial-based wildflowers, and just broadcast that through your yard and just let it be. And again, I don't know what kind of neighbors you have and what it have you, but my preference is to mow as seldom as possible with the lawn. So I want to let it grow right to the point where I, if I go, if I wait another week, it's going to be hard to mow. It's going to choke the mower out. And, and if you go much more than that, then actually when you mow, it's worse because there's so much discharge that you actually, the, 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 what you're throwing back on the lawn weighs down on the rest of the grass. So kind of keeping an eye on it, mow as little as possible. Maybe certain areas that, are, that get more dominated by the clover, don't mow. That, that's kind of my approach to this, and, and hopefully that, that is helpful to you as well. Um, next one uh, is, uh, well, I'm going uh, to play you the video, the audio of the video that goes with it. It came to me from Josh, and the title of it, it says, Walmart launches a small army of autonomous scanning robots and what josh says is in the video one lady asks if this will take jobs the guy's response is no it will make stalkers jobs easier i don't think we're at free fall yet but it's creeping up on us very steadily so with that let's go ahead and hear from uh this story on uh online and we'll uh, we'll give you a link to it in the show notes where you can check it out as well it could be a game changer for retail. KPIX5's Kid Doe shows us artificial intelligence will soon be put to work at Walmart stores around the country. For a glimpse of the future of retail, we head to Walmart in Milpitas. The company is launching a small army of autonomous scanning robots. That's a nice one. It's so cool. It's about six feet tall, equipped with an array of lights, cameras, and radar sensors. It goes up and down each aisle on its own, about two to three miles per hour, scanning the shelves for empty spots and also checks the price tags. Because the robot uses LiDAR and other video cameras, what it actually sees is very similar to what self-driving cars see. The three-dimensional world it sees is detailed enough for the algorithm to figure out what's missing and needs restocking. And when an employee standing on a ladder gets in view of the camera, yeah, it'll scan that too. Do you feel like a proud papa? <laughs> Martin Hitch is the chief business officer at Bossa Nova, based in San Francisco, the company that made the robot. He says it's supposed to drive around obstacles and look for alternative routes. We boxed it in with four TV cameras earlier, and it made a decision on the fly as to how to figure out a way around so that it could carry on with its job. That's the most rewarding thing. The robot can scan an aisle in about 90 seconds. That's a fraction of the time it would take a human to do the same job. It doesn't get bored, distracted, and presumably doesn't make mistakes. The goal? Fewer empty shelves and better selection. Walmart is testing the robot in 50 stores across four states. Wow. So is that taking somebody's job? It's not taking somebody's job. It's, it's designed to improve the job. Deborah Espinoza is skeptical. She works at San Jose International Airport and says when automated checkout was introduced there, cashiers were laid off. Uh, Walmart says that they are freeing up their associates to provide better customer service. You buy that? Uh, no. <laughs> no. Walmart says it's still too early to say how the robots will impact their workforce. Because technology changes the types of jobs that we have, but nothing will replace 
um, customer service and human interaction and being with other people and being serviced by a human. In Milpitas, Kitto, KPIX Fund. Well, first of all, the lady that says she doesn't believe that it's not going to cost jobs is absolutely correct. Uh, it'll make their jobs easier. Do you know what it means when you make somebody's job easier? It means that one person can do more. And then what does that mean? You need less people to do that job. And as far as customer service, does anyone here feel like the customer service that you generally obtain at a Walmart store is extremely valuable to you? That, you know, when you ask somebody something, they actually have a solid recommendation and an answer, and, and you feel like you're better off for having asked for help than have, having just plotted through and figured it out yourself? Do you really feel that way? Because I'll, I'll imagine that... There probably are Walmart stores that are like that, and most of them are probably in smaller markets where uh, when you go in and you're talking to an employee there, they're a full-grown adult that is capable of doing more than that job, but that was the job that was available in their, their economy. So that's the job that they have. Many times there are people that, you know, do little projects of their own and things like that. And, you know, they've worked in the store for a long time, and they actually give a shit. So when you say, where is something, they actually know. And when you say, well, if you know you're kind of in their little hardware department, I'm trying to do this. Oh, I did that once. Let me show you. I'm sure those Walmarts exist, but they don't exist here where I live. I mean, I'm going to say, I know it's going to piss some people off to work for Walmart, but if you work for Walmart, you know what I'm about to say is true, even if you don't want to admit it. About half of the people in a Walmart store that work there are at the absolute finite limit of their capability as a person. So do I really think that having more of them provide customer service is going to be that valuable to a customer? Let's also talk about another changing component of demographics. The millennials that we browbeat all the time about sucking, um, you need to understand that the youngest people out there today, the kids that are in grade school and shit, they're not millennials. They're Generation Z or whatever the hell they're going to call them. Millennials, the oldest millennials that are in their 30s, They are now in the demographic of the primary decision-making spender just behind Gen X, who has a lot more people in the 40 and 50 range that are have done well for themselves financially. So the 45-year-old the male is still the primary consumer of things in our country from a standpoint of having disposable income. You don't like it, I don't care, it's the way it is, and every company out there knows it. The millennials are rapidly moving into that That space. Us aging Gen Xers, we're on the way out. We're, we're, we're fixing to be old people. Okay? I mean, we're, we're turning into grandparents. Our kids are millennials. Having kids that are Zs or whatever the hell they're going to call them, right? Okay. That group of people wants to talk to as few people as possible when making a purchase. They don't like people. They grew up in a world with a cell phone, a computer, a tablet, the Internet at all times. Their primary means of communication with their, their real-world friends that they actually meet and have drinks with and shake hands with and hug, like not cold, distant people, you know, on Facebook by a handle. The primary way they communicate with the people that they love is in text. They don't like to deal with people. And again... My experience is I understand why. There is a large segment of society that I loathe having to ask for help when the, that's my only option. Because I know 
that I'm going to deal with stupidity and incompetence, but they're who I need to get this thing done. It's like going to the DMV or what have you, right? Like, I must rely on this person. And the millennials and the next generation have grown up in a world of technology where I don't have to deal with you until you're a last resort. So if I don't want to deal with the person at Walmart for customer service, I just want the answer now in a competent way. What does that for me better? Somebody that I have to try to find, then ask a question who doesn't know, so they ask somebody else. Or an app. See, what is the main thing you use people for in a store other than to check out and to put shit on the shelf so you can buy it? Where is X? Okay. Every department store should already have an app that handles what is X. And some of them do and don't even know that they do. For instance, I gave up a long time ago at Lowe's walking up to somebody and going, Hey, where do you guys have the fill in the blank? Because it usually results in a blank stare and, uh, I work in home goods and, uh, that's like hardware and, um, I'm not really sure. But I know somebody, and then you're following one person looking for another person. With the exception, I'm going to tell you what, you know, like where the grill stuff, the outdoor stuff, the tractors, all that shit is. Usually the guy managing that has his shit together. I don't know why, but he does. But if I'm looking for a hasp for a door, I don't need a person. I need the freaking hasp. So do you know how I do that at Lowe's? I open up Lowe's.com, and it knows my closest Lowe's store. And I put in hasp. And it shows me all the, oh, there's the kind of hasp I want. And it says, hey, not only does the store that you're closest to, because you're standing inside of it, have those hasps, they have 27 of them in inventory. And they are in row 7, you know, bin A5. 7A5, but there they are. Now I don't need you to tell me where the damn hasps are that you should know, because you've worked in this store for 20 freaking years or whatever it is. So the, the concept that people are actually going to resist this is fantasy. And I know I see people on sometimes, I will never do self-checkout because that takes away somebody's job. And you're in a union? No. Well, then, I mean, that's union mentality. Even though this is better, faster, more efficient, it takes somebody's job away. So we should continue to pay more for it, wait longer for it, and get lower quality service when we do it because someone needs a job. And, and it's just not reality. And it's not the way things are going to work. And, and to tell you the truth, if it wasn't for unions, we'd be further along in this process. See, these, these companies, they do business in all 50 states, and the influence of unions varies greatly state to state to state. The influence a union has in Illinois or Pennsylvania or New Jersey is significantly less than, let's say, the influence that a union has in a state like Texas or Alabama or Florida. So this shit's going to happen. And again, any belief that it won't is a fantasy. And when, whenever someone says, but what this technology does is make the job of X person easier, okay, that means that X person is going to be reduced in required numbers, and companies do not hire people just to give them jobs. They hire you because you can do something that they need done that's profitable. And the minute you're not profitable... You're either fired, you're replaced, or you're accepted as a necessary evil. 
So, for instance, I might be required by law to have a certain type of inspector in my operation that I really don't need, but the government was successfully lobbied to the point where they put that onerous requirement on me. Like, let's say, in a chicken processing factory, I have to basically pay the salary of the inspector, give him full benefits, and an office space where he stays at my facility. Well, he's not profitable to me, but he's necessary. If you ain't necessary or profitable, you're gone. And then how necessary are you And can that necessity be replaced by a technology? You are also gone. And this is everything. Blue collar, white collar, everything is going to be more and more replaced by machines. And no people won't resist it. And the primary people that will resist it are baby boomers and they're aging out. And the next three generations will mostly embrace this. So don't think it's going to go away or slow down. It's going to speed up, and it's eventually it is going to snowball. And when it snowballs, it's going to run away with everything. It, it, the people that are naysayers are going to be like the people that stood on the street in New York City in 1899, and one of them horseless carriages came through, and there were horses and donkeys everywhere and piles and piles of shit everywhere, and they said, oh, that thing will never take, take off. And by 1915... The only horses there were the ones that gave people rides in the park. That that's and it's it, it'll be a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and boom. So stay alert and stay marketable in your skill set and your value to other people because there is a place for that. It just isn't in stocking shelves or ringing up groceries. Yesterday I went to the grocery store. The most painful part of it, waiting in line to pay for my shit. Do you really think? If they had scan and go when I had to go to the grocery store last minute for my wife, that I would have stood in line to protect somebody's job who wasn't good at it, which is why the line moved so slow? <laughs> Not a chance, buddy. Not a chance. Next, John from Colorado has sent me a quick success story. He says, Jack, my folks still live in New York, and they were hit with a few wicked storms lately. During one, the power went out, and an electric company said it would be <clears throat> a minimum of five days until power was restored. When my mom came home from work, she saw lights on in the house and was confused. My dad had taken his inverter and hooked it up to his car and ran extension cords outside into the house for lights and a cycle door freezers on for a few hours uh, the Spearco Harris way. I turned my dad on to this a long time ago after listening to you and Steve talk about it. You made their lives a bit easier during the outage, which ended up being like six days. Thanks, John. Do you know, I think that especially parents, when you have your kids getting that first home, And you say, or the first apartment, and you do a housewarming gift, and you spend fifty to a hundred bucks on something like a comforter or something like that. Let them pick their own damn comforter out and pay for it, you know, or a picture or whatever. You know what you need for a homewarming gift? A couple extension cords, a couple of those orange three-way things from Walmart that are a couple dollars a piece, and a fifty-dollar inverter, and an hour of instruction. When the power goes off, do this. Clamp this on your battery. We're going to put this on a piece of pine board right now so it doesn't go down in there and get blown up. Set this here. Plug this in. Let's go plug your refrigerator in make sure it works. Wow, look at that. Your refrigerator works so your freezer works. Okay, here's a moving blanket. I got you that too. It was like five bucks at Harbor Freight. When the power goes out, throw this on top of your refrigerator. It'll help keep it cold. Plug this thing in. Run it a couple hours every ten hours and your food will be just fine. Don't open it unless you need to. Eat the ice cream first. Here's a couple lamps with LED bulbs in them. Plug those in. Now you got light. 
Here's a car charger. Make sure while you're running your car anyway to do this stuff, you plug your dadgone thing in. Here's some end-loop batteries. Boom. Now that's a homewarming gift. You know? Depending on how much you like somebody is how much that you do. But, I mean, I think it's one of the best preparedness moves that a person can make to buy a $50 freaking inverter to make your $30,000 to $40,000 generator work. Because that's what your car is. Your brand new, you know, SUV or whatever that you spent forty-five grand on. That is a forty-five thousand dollar electrical generator sitting in your parking lot that doesn't make power for you because you don't have a fifty-dollar part for it. Personally, I think cars should come with one built into it. That's just my opinion. Of course, soon we'll go to electric cars and it won't work that way anymore. But for now, it does, and this is one of the best preparedness moves you can take. All right. This is my last one for today. This comes from Weston. Weston says, Hi, Jack. I just finished listening to episode 2186, where you talked a little bit about the changes that have happened to your duck egg business since Dorothy hasn't been involved as much. What caught my attention was when you described Dorothy as being a little anxious about having so many eggs on hand at one point and then ultimately being able to find customers for them all. My question is, could you describe a little more about the system that you have or had for keeping track of the eggs? Do you keep track of which customer each dozen is going to? Do you keep track of spoilage, i.e. when the dozen is too old to sell? My side hustle is that I've developed a mobile app called Mother Hen for iOS and Android to help keep track of a backyard flock of chickens. I've gotten requests from my users to add the ability to keep track of egg inventory in addition to egg production and finances. However, we at our homestead only produce enough eggs for our own needs and give away to friends, so I thought I would ask someone who has more experience with the business side of it. Thanks, Wes. Okay, Wes, here's the deal. I wouldn't have used this app and neither would have Dorothy, but that doesn't mean other people won't. I'll tell you what we did. It was very simple. Every day we picked up eggs. Eggs came in, they got processed and put into cartons. On that carton went a date. The date was not the date they're bad. The date was the day they went in the carton. If we had four extra eggs today and didn't fill a carton, that carton went in the indoor refrigerator with eight empty holes in it. The next day, the eggs got picked up again, and that carton would get filled out, and the date that would go on it was the date that was already there, the day before. So we always might have one odd carton that wasn't completely filled, and we dated it the day the first eggs went into it. And that simply meant what? That simply meant that the eggs that were added to it were a day less old. So we were erring to the side of caution. The eggs went into the refrigerator. My wife has a dedicated refrigerator just for eggs, and sometimes she would spill over into my extra beer refrigerator if her inventory got high. She stacked them with the thing facing out so you could see the date on them, from oldest to newest, top to bottom. When somebody was buying eggs, unless they had a specific reason, they got the oldest eggs we had on hand, And we would also work with a lot of people that would buy like six dozen eggs at a time, and they would buy like once a month. And eggs are fine for 60 days at least if balls are kept refrigerated. Actually, sometimes even if they're not, depending on how they're stored and how they're handled. So what we would do then is if a person was buying six dozen, we'd say, can we give you some older ones? And just use those first. So if we had some that were as old as, let's say, two weeks old, when we had an inventory capacity Uh, you know, when we, when we had more inventory than we had sales, we might give them two dozen that were a couple weeks old. We might give them two dozen that were weeks old, and we might give them two dozen that were just picked in the last day or two. And that way, they they had plenty of longevity in their six dozen. But that's about it. 
Did, if, if we got to a point where eggs were going to get older than we would like for selling, which for us was about 30 days, um, we would go ahead and take those eggs and we'd either hard boil them for ourselves, cook them for ourselves, crack them and freeze them for ourselves, or feed them to the dogs. Or she'd hit her list up and say, hey, I've got some, and I've got a couple that are almost about a month old. They're still fine. Would you like those? I'll give them to you at a discount. Maybe give them a dollar off a dozen or something like that, depending on how many we had. In the end, the problem of having too many eggs was always short-lived. Because as soon as she would go work her customer list, they would just be gone. Or it would almost be like she'd come to me one day, oh, too many eggs. And like she'd come back to me the next day and go, I don't know, like five people called at one, and like they're gone. I, and now I'm on a list again. So a big part of that was effective marketing. Now the announcement I said I'd say for the end. Uh, on Sunday uh, this week, last week I guess, yesterday, the last nine-mile farm duck left to go to his new home down in Granbury, Texas. Uh, in fact, I think like 20 of them went to one place altogether. We now are duckless. We are empty nesters for real. We have no ducks. And I'm going to begin the process now of rebuilding some things out where the ducks were living, where the duck house was, uh, putting a little perch in there for the little chickens, the little bantam chickens, uh, getting their composting system that's currently in the uh, aviary set up out there, uh, and teaching them that they go to bed at night in the house with a closed door. And eventually automate that so that, you know, maybe, maybe once a week we would have to do something with them. We'll go out there every day anyway, but, you know, if we have to leave for a few days and somebody's watching the place, pff, not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. So that's... That's kind of the end of an era, right? It's the end of an era, if anybody remembers that from Friends. Um, yeah, it's the end of an era. And I, I have mixed emotions about it. Every time we would be giving them to people when we were selling them off, um, you know, I'd be like, you know, I'd talk to the person, what are you looking for? And a lot of them, like, I want a diverse flock. You know, people just wanted like, you know, five or six different breeds if we had them. And uh, I'd be like, oh, okay, well, let me get you a Welsh Harlequin. And I'd get the sermon, like, okay, you know what, this Welsh Harlequin, uh, we, we got a, a batch of silvers. This is a gold-faced one, and it, it's a, this, she's a really great duck. And you, like, you realize, I know this individual duck. I raised this individual duck, and now I'm sending her you know, to live somewhere else. Um, it was hard on some levels to do that because you, know, you have a lot vested. I don't just mean money. I mean vesting in emotion into these animals. And, you know, we did a great job with these birds. And, you know, we fought off predators for them. And we raised them from little babies. And we did three seasons of Duck Chronicles and all. But in the end, the lifestyle is just what we're looking for. And we just don't have time anymore. Now, my wife has already said that the, the, the pitter-patter of web feet will return probably next year. We have a year now of no duck activity to get everything established the way that we want And then maybe next year we'll get like four ducks and they can live with the chickens. And, you know, then they can be ducks that live in a duck run, but they can come out, you know, in the evening for a couple hours and, and be trained to go home and things like that. Because uh, we do, we are going to miss having them around. We really are. Uh, I'll miss the geese too, but I don't miss having, every time I pat, pat, plant a sapling, having the freaking goose eat all the bark off of it because it's angry because I don't recognize this new thing on my property or what have you. So it's a, it's a big change. But I think it's a change for the good. Uh, next up, as we're wrapping up today, I want to let you guys know, uh, Bill Tong for Breakfast is, is well into production now. Uh, we released today not Episode two, but a teaser for Episode two, which is Pig Wrapped Pig. 
And uh, we, we corrected the audio as best we could with the over-amplification of the audio with some editing software. But, you know, this episode coming out, episode two, and there might be a three that we can get out of it, they're going to have that blow, too loud blowing audio. But Saturday, my buddy Hatch is coming here to do some consulting for us, and we're buying some equipment from him. And we're going to hang out. We're going to do episode three, four, five, whatever the hell it is of Bill Tong for breakfast. And uh, we've got uh, a new piece of equipment that'll last David and I to both be mic'd, and he's going to teach us how to not be idiots and not overblow the volume and, and make sure that you know we do things right and a little bit of work with David on, on, on the filming aspect of things. But we're going to try to keep it a little bit hokey, you know, a little bit just not perfect. We don't want it, We want you to be able to hear us well, and we want to be able to see things well, but we don't want it to look like something you're going to see on, on the cooking channel or something like that. We want it to be... Real and authentic, like you're here with us. So that's coming, and I, th I think you really, if you haven't checked out Bill Tong for Breakfast yet, it's at BillTongForBreakfast.com. Uh, we've done a pretty good job of getting it off the ground, and it's only going to get better from here. And, hey, if you check it out and become a subscriber now, which is free, uh, you can say one day, I remember when your audio sucked, just like people today say, I was with you in the car, and I remembered your first week, and your audio sucked, and you got better. That's what we're doing over there. Now, that takes us to our item of the day which coincidentally is another one of my cooking cheat codes, which fits in. And if you uh, subscribe to Bill Tong for breakfast, you're going to uh, see this ingredient used pretty soon because um, it is absolutely uh, going to be one of the items that we're going to be cooking with this Saturday. It is Walker's Wood traditional Jamaican jerk seasoning. Again, this is one of those... Items I think belongs in your pantry that I put in the group that I call my cooking cheat codes. I talked about dough and jang uh, fermented soy paste last week. This stuff is the bomb. Now, I've always loved Jamaican chicken, jerk, Jamaican jerk chicken, and so much so that long ago, when I was broke even, because it's really not expensive to make Jamaican jerk chicken, it's pretty easy, I taught myself how to make it. This is before the days of the Internet. You didn't just look it up. And, you know, you get your scotch bonnet pepper, so usually here that means you get habaneros as close as you're going to get, and you, your scallions and all this stuff. And you make this this jerk seasoning, and you rub your chicken with it, and you let it sit overnight, and you cook your chicken. It's really not hard. Well, when I met Neil Franklin, who many of y'all have uh, heard from at one time or another, he's a former business partner of mine and still a good friend and fellow foodie, he uh, said, hey, you got to try this stuff in a jar. And uh, he's like, you'll never make it yourself again because it's so damn good. And when I tried it, it was great. Um, and if you look at what's in it, you understand why. Because it's, it's basically the core of a solid jerk seasoning. Scallion, scotch bonnet pepper, salt, pepper, allspice, nutmeg, some citric acid as a preservative, which is the one thing you probably wouldn't do with making it fresh, some cane sugar, which is a way of saying sugar, and some thyme leaves. And that's, that's a solid recipe. And this is the stuff that everybody that I know that makes jerk chicken, uh, that wants to do it the easy way and be happy with it, this is what they use. It comes in hot and spicy and mild. The mild is exactly the same stuff. There's just less peppers in it. That's, that's the only difference. I don't think the hot is that hot, even with those scotch bonnets. I don't think it's that hot. Now, here's what I just learned. I, for all the years of making this, I didn't know you can actually buy pimento wood chips. Pimento is a tree that grows in Jamaica and other tropical islands that they always make their jerk chicken on. Traditional jerk chicken, actually, they put down logs of it and they cook on top of the logs with indirect heat. 
well, that smokiness of that pimento is that like one thing you really can't do in your oven or your grill. Well, with the pimento wood chips, you can. I got a link to those in the show notes as well. But this is a cheat code. So you know, like, I'm not just going to tell you, hey, you can make jerk chicken because, well, that's the purpose of Jamaican jerk season. That's the main reason people want it. Everybody knows about it. Um, there's a lot of things you can do with it. So how about this? Jamaican jerk shrimp wrapped in bacon. Okay. It's as simple as it sounds. We take the shrimp, peeled and deveined. We rub some of the jerk seasoning on them. We sprinkle that with a little bit of lime juice. We wrap them with bacon, put them on a skewer, and cook them. That's it. The bacon grease mixed with the jerk seasoning, with the shrimp, it's, it, and the lime comes through. It's very, very good. It's just very, very good. But, hey, how about a Spearco hack? So when you wrap bacon, shrimp, and you cook them, it's almost impossible to get them really crisp or even a little bit crisp. Or if you do, you just ruin the shrimp. What you do is cook your bacon about a third of the way where it will still wrap easily for you and then wrap your shrimp and then finish it. And by the way, while you're doing that, take a, like a cast iron griddle, put it on a side burner or on the side of your stove or your, uh, I'm sorry, your grill, get it nice and hot, and right at the end, take the skewers and just put them one side down, 15, 20 seconds on both sides, and that'll crisp the bacon without overcooking the shrimp. So I'll give you a hack to go with it. How about jerked baby back ribs? Yep, and I'll tell you how I do that. I rub down the ribs with the jerk seasoning, put them in the refrigerator overnight. The next day, I dump a beer into a pressure cooker. Yes, if you pressure cook your ribs, you're not going to spend hours in the smoker ever again. This is just too easy. So you take those ribs, you put them in the pressure cooker on a steamer uh, rack so they're not sitting down on the bottom directly. You dump a beer in the bottom and then pressure cook them. And then when you're done with the pressure cooker, 45, 50 minutes, take your ribs out, set them aside, let them come, kind of come back down to a, a reasonable temperature before they're going to go finish and get firmed up on the grill or in the oven. Then all that beautiful juice with that jerk seasoning down there in the bottom, We take some of that and mix about it. So then we're going to take some of that, put it in a little saucepan, reduce it by half to concentrate it a little bit. And then when you have that reduction, about the same amount of whatever your favorite barbecue sauce is, and mix that together. And then baste your ribs with that and finish them on the grill or finish them in the oven. And all you're doing there is they're going to be really super tender, and it firms them up a little bit when you, when you finish them like that, when they're not under all that steam. And you want that, that glaze to kind of dry off a little bit, maybe crisp around the edges. Oven and the broiler is a great way to do it. And you're talking like you throw them in the oven on bake for about 10 minutes, kick the broiler on for like two or three. And watch them, and as soon as you know that they're as crisp as you want them to be and, and cooked as much as you want, take them out. On the grill, you just put them on the grill, close down, good high heat. When that base looks the way you want it, maybe baste them a time or two, get them off of there because they're cooked. Right? We just finished them up. And then save some of that base for the side for dipping. How's that, guys? Huh? That could be a show in itself. I am thinking about doing a show tomorrow called Jack's Cheat Codes. Jack's Cooking Cheat Codes. Let me know if you want me to do that. Oh, and I got one on burgers. How about a Jamaican jerk burger with jalapenos and apple? Huh? You want to know how to make it? Got to go look at the review. We're running out of time here. But that is in the review that I have for today. Again, Walker's Wood Traditional Jamaican Seasoning. The link I have takes you to a twin pack of the hot and spicy. Or you can get a twin pack of the mild. Or you can get a pack with one of each. So that you can decide which one you prefer. Or maybe you have a person that doesn't like heat in your house that much. You can make two batches. It's really simple. This stuff belongs in your pantry. It lasts a long time, too. It's, it's kind of hard for the stuff that's in there to really go bad. All right, with that, that brings us to our song of the day. And our song of the day today is perfect for today. It's by the Mamas and the Papas. And it's called 
Monday, Monday, yes, that song. And it's just basically a somewhat sarcastic-looking song at just how bad Monday sucks. Yeah, you have that great weekend, and even Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, like, it all seems like uphill from there. They say Wednesday's hump day or whatever, but freaking Monday, man. Even me, in a lifestyle business, it's like, ugh. Because you know what it is for me? I never get as much done as I want on a weekend. I just don't. And, uh, you know, I, you want to get that one more thing done, and you don't do it. And now uh, you got to get back to the grind and get back to work. Monday, Monday. But it's even though it's kind of melancholy and, and, and sarcastic, this song, it also is kind of upbeat. And here's my thing. When you say Monday suck or Tuesday suck or Wednesday suck, whatever it is, you know, I, I hate I don't know who the hell hates Fridays, but whatever. Um, every day that you get to wake up and participate in it is a good damn day to have. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Monday, Monday, so good to me. Monday morning, it was all. Day. Oh, no.